I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. Every summer during the first week of June, people from all across the country, and in some cases, the world, travel back to Tennessee. They come back to celebrate the community known as Promised Land. You see, their ancestors founded this town just outside of Charlotte, Tennessee, during Reconstruction. The founders were formerly enslaved people, and at least five had served with the United States Colored Troops. What they created in Promised Land was a world of their own making, a place where they were in control of their own livelihood and future, a community created with their own vision. Later this hour, we'll talk with descendants of the founders about how this unique place was formed and how it's being preserved. But first, it's time for Add Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am literally encouraging you to at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at our past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. What's been on our listeners' minds this past week? Well, there was a fiery conversation about our hot chicken episode on Twitter recently. After the show, Elise reached out to us to ask why we didn't mention Hattie B's and other well-known local hot chicken places. She wrote, quote, this promised analysis of hot chicken politics failed to mention key players, good and bad. Okay, so by not including Hattie B's, we weren't implying that we thought it was bad. Of course not. I actually really, really like Hattie Mee's. So do I. And seriously, we could have done an entire documentary about hot chicken if we had the time. Mm-hmm. So no disrespect to Hattie Mee's, but with only an hour show, we really wanted to highlight the woman who created hot chicken because, so, you know, without them, it wouldn't be possible. That's right. So it's official. That means we need more hot chicken episodes and possibly we get hot chicken for lunch. Ooh, I'm down. Okay. So what else did we hear from our listeners? So while you were out, we also did an episode on Nolensville Pike. Mm -hmm. During the show, a listener who goes by Dixie on Twitter wrote to us saying, I lived here all my life. Yeah, it's the quote unquote official name, but natives call it Nolensville Road, not Nolensville Pike. Same for Hillsborough, Franklin and Lebanon. Guest host and Middle Tennessee native Nina Cardona switched between Pike and Road during the show. We made sure to tweet to let Dixie know, um, and I think we got her to come around. She dropped us a nice note about how she's enjoying the show and seeing Nashville through your, quote, newcomer eyes, Khalil. Oh, that is super sweet. I appreciate that. I'm definitely still a newcomer. You know, we also got tweets from a listener named Matthew. He said he lived in that area in South Nashville for many years. Our episode focused on how Nolansville Road really has become the place in Nashville to travel for global foodways. Matthew said, our immigrants are one of the more fundamental strengths of our city. And I couldn't agree more, Matthew. Anything else, Anna? Well, I really want to thank all of our listeners who submitted their questions and shared their experiences about therapy for our recent Citizen Nashville episode focused on mental health. We got a couple of voice messages, too, including one from our listener, Bob Hutchins. He shared with us that he has faced some challenges with his own mental health a few years back, and he's been really open about it. And he actually went on to host a TED Talk about it. Hmm. He has some advice um, on how to care for yourself and a child or other family member struggling with mental health. First of all, keep communication honest and open. It's important that your child knows um, that they can approach you and with any issue, no matter what, and that they'll be listened to and that they'll be loved. 
I think uh, the second one, model healthy coping skills. So activities, deep breathing, pursuing art or going for walks. These are all models for healthy coping skills that children will learn quickly. I would also say that uh, routines and boundaries at home help to deal with anxiety. And I think finally, I would say, talk about emotions and feelings regularly. Be mindful of these things, both for your own mental health and for the mental health of your child. That is amazing and great advice. Thanks, Bob. There was some great advice from people with lived experience in that episode, including someone recovering from alcoholism and another man with schizoaffective disorder. Listen back to that one. So in addition to the episode about mental health, we actually put together a list of resources from that episode, which you can find on our website under the Citizen Nashville tag. So be sure to check that out. And we've got another Citizen Nashville episode coming up, right? Yes, this one is all about the Nashville Metro budget. Mm. If the avalanche of tweets that we got when we talked about Nissan Stadium are any indication, our listeners have a lot, and I mean a lot, to say about how the city spends its money. Okay. So, listeners, we're collecting your questions and thought about the Metro budget at thisisnashville.org. So, please share with us. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course, and our listeners know where to find me. Don't forget to add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet some descendants of the Promised Land founders and talk with a historian about how this town was created and what makes it so unique. Do you have a connection to Promised Land? Tell us about it. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. A few times a month, we're taking you out into the city with us to show you an ordinary street corner, a vacant grocery store, a brand new CVS. Now, I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very exciting. Our goal is to take you back in time, to bring our history to life, and to show you our city and region what it has been. Today, we're dropping a pin in promised land Tennessee. Shortly after the end of the Civil War, formerly enslaved African Americans established and settled Promised Land in Dixon County. They came from farms around Charlotte, Tennessee, and from Cumberland Furnace, the nearby ironworks town. Some of the first settlers, like Ed Van Leer and John Nesbitt, served with the United States Colored Troops during the war. The town remained independent and actually flourished through the Jim Crow era. Each year, descendants of the town's original founders travel from far and wide for what is essentially a big family reunion. We sent our executive producer, Andrea Tudhope, out to Promised Land for this year's festival earlier this month. It's a beautiful, sunny Saturday morning in Promised Land. There's a small crowd gathered under a tent. The annual hat parade is about to begin. Descendant Helen Edmondson Hughes started this tradition years back. She is famous in this town for her hats. You never saw her without a hat. She wore a hat everywhere. 
That's her older sister, Bernice Edmondson Hurd. Helen passed away last year. So today, Bernice is wearing one of Helen's hats. It's lime green, wrapped in red hearts. The parade kicks off and Bernice leads the way. In line behind her are women in bright sun hats, pinks and yellows, some wrapped in scarves. Come on, y'all, clap your hands for them. Look at the parade of hats. Toka Nesbitt Rainey is in the parade. She's a descendant of founder and U.S. Colored Troops veteran John Nesbitt. It's been 29 years since she last stepped foot here in Promised Land. Uh, you can see the reinvestment into the community where now former descendants are coming back home. And that's what this weekend means to me. It is just so... I'm just full. Today's Promised Land isn't quite what it used to be. But to this day, one of the town's churches and the original Promised Land school are still intact. Seeing the original piano and seeing the original soul machine and seeing the benches and the actual desk where they sat, you can feel the history. Hanging on each gust of this cool early summer breeze is a memory. The air seems to be bursting with them. Toka's right. You can feel it. Almost can hear the bell ringing. We out here playing and hear the teacher standing in the door. When the bell rang, we had to line up, and then we would line up according to our ages and our size. Nancy Nesbitt Winfield was born and raised here. In its heyday, Promised Land was a self-sustained, thriving community. All within a thousand acres or so, there was a school, three churches, and a few general stores, selling everything from flour and sugar to coal oil and chicken feed. We had gardens, we raised our own food, we had fruit orchards and all of that. Our favorite nuts was hickory nuts, we had hickory nut trees over there. Of course, this was their land. They grew the food they ate, they raised their own livestock and tended to their own tobacco farms. I remember after school, you know, we had to work, we had chores. We had to get home, we had to get the chips and the wood in the house because we had wood burning stoves. We had to feed the animals. We had pigs, we had cows. We had a pig named Rocky and she was our, she was our pet pig, just like a dog. Rocky was in the house with us, uh-huh. At its peak, there were around 50 houses in Promised Land. The founders built a one-room schoolhouse where they taught first through eighth grade. By 1905, there were nearly 100 kids in attendance. School let out around three back then. After congregating around the mailboxes on the main road, the kids roamed free. We played hide-and-go-seek, uh, honey, honey, bee ball, we played that. Honey, honey, bee ball, I can't see you. Honey, honey, bee ball, I can't see In the summer, if I was here, we could be up and down this road. I don't know how my mother <laughs> kept up with us. That's descendant Sylvia Edmondson Holt. The Edmondsons lived down the way from the Nesbitts, right on Promised Land Road. One of the churches in town sat right across the street from their house. So of course, they went every Sunday, all the kids in a line and dad at the back. Well, almost. And guess who was behind daddy? Old Skippy. That was our pet. <laughs> Skippy came all the way to the church door. My dad saved a biscuit from breakfast. So he would take that biscuit, because the road was not paved, so there was dust. 
So as we crossed that road and got dust on our little patent leather shoes, Daddy had a biscuit in his pocket. He would shine everybody's shoe with that old biscuit, and then he would hand it to Skippy. Her dad was Theodore Edmondson. He started the Promised Land Singers. They were famous for a yearly recording session that came to be known as All Night Singing, because even after the radio crew stopped recording, they'd sing and sing all night long. I remember vividly him singing here on the porch with his guitar, and we'd be sitting out here in the yard, so we were the audience, and he was on stage almost every night for the children. The town was brimming with life. It was on these porches where this history was carried, told, and retold. Sylvia's cousin, Serena Gilbert, walked that dirt road, porch to porch, collecting those stories. I can remember very vividly seeing streams of smoke coming up out of the chimneys and seeing laundry hanging on clotheslines, uh, blowing in the wind, and smelling the food that was cooking. I remember the people who, the older people who were at home and not working, would be on the porches. B. Edmondson was one. We called him Cousin Bubba. Okay, I need to jump in here to say Cousin Bubba may very well have been Serena's cousin. In Promised Land, everyone is a cousin. Probably are. Most people in Promised Land are cousins. That's so, that's so wonderful. <laughs> yes, Sanchez. they really are. Hi, Sanchez. Hi. I'm your cousin, Kay. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Yeah. Good to you meet you. And we were trying to figure out, we've been friends for over 50 years. And she said, we may be cousins. My mother was the aunt of your I mean, mother? Your mother, I'm sorry, was the sister of your grandmother. So we're cousins. At least that's what we've always called each other. They all descended from those tight-knit families who first settled here in the late 1800s. Nancy of the Nesbitt family told me those roots are strong. And if you're from Promised Land, you know, that connection, you just always want to come back and it's just your family. It's like one big family. Okay, so back to Serena's cousin, Bubba. He would share things about his life when he was a child. And I enjoyed hearing those stories. And in fact, those stories still live with me now. By the 1950s, the town had dwindled. A lot of families migrated north, most to Ohio. Serena was 12, and one of the last students left when the Promised Land School had to close down for good in 1957. But that school was her foundation. There were five shelves in the library in the back corner of that one-room schoolhouse. She still remembers those books. There was a book called Near and Faraway Places. I enjoyed those books uh, because it took me away from promised land to far places. Her education and career did take her to some of those faraway places, but her mom, Essie Van Leer Gilbert, never left promised land. When Serena returned in 2004, Essie was one of maybe two original descendants left. It was a ghost town, and Essie was on a mission to bring it back. She uh, herself was a historian and a griot uh, who uh, loved to share the history. And so it was contagious uh, having her live under my roof and telling me and sharing the oral history with me. You know, I caught the bug. <laughs> if only Miss Essie could see it today. 
since her return, Serena picked up her mom's torch and has ushered in a new era for Promised Land. Promised Land is like in every fabric of my being. I feel like a daughter to the community. So when I talk about my ancestors, I feel very close to them. And, um, I, and I feel like I'm speaking as a child would about their parents. I feel that type of kinship. In the past few decades, the Heritage Association picked up steam, the road's been paved, and the schoolhouse restored. And now families are actually moving in. Houses are being built on land still owned by the descendants of those original settlers. It's a diverse town now, but it's still Black-owned land. And that's something. It feels good. It feels like life is continuing. Under the afternoon sun, there's a duo performing, the Danberries. They grew up right here in Promised Land. Most of the descendants don't live here anymore, but those roots may be stronger than they've been yet. Although we moved away when I was young, we never forgot it. We came back every year for homecoming, and we talked about it all the time. So promised land has always been a you know, word in our house. When I put my feet down here, I know this is my roots. This was Nesbitt land right here where, my, where I'm sitting. And my great-grandfather donated this land to this community. From the beginning, Promised Land, it grew out of hardship. People in Promised Land, you know, put their feet and their hands to the grind and didn't look back. And I want them to remember, that's why we work so hard now to preserve the school and to preserve the heritage because, you know, we want it to be, even when we're gone, we want Promised Land to still be there. We want our children, our children's children to know about Promised Land. That was descendant Nancy Nesbitt-Winfield. Joining me now is Nancy's brother, Sokoto Fulani, a charter member of the Promised Land Heritage Association and that association's executive director, descendant Serena K. Gilbert. Serena and Sokoto, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Sokoto, your sister Nancy, she just described what it feels like to be there with her feet on the ground that your great-great-grandfather donated to Promised Land. How does it feel to you being there? Oh, it feels the same. I'm, you know, as um, Nancy had, had stated, not being able to go back this year because of my health. Um, I have a heart condition, um, and my uh, physician said that I sh- should not, probably should not try this year. But it's just so very good. I'm very appreciative of NPR and um, the station for 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 doing this uh, continuation of a documentary, which is just. We have to make sure that it continues. Well, we appreciate so I'm you. I'm very, very appreciative. Yes. Mm-hmm. We appreciate you being here and telling us this. So, this history. Tell us some more about John Nesbitt. Well, we're very glad to. John Nesbitt, and um, I think you said great, great. He's he's my, he's our Nancy and my uh, great grandfather, Charlie Nesbitt, his second um, um, youngest child. He had 12 children with his wife, Ellen uh, Clemens, in Promised Land. Um, was the uh, person that has been spoken of who, uh, during through his service of uh, in, 
as a U.S. colored trooper in the Civil War, uh, was able to put a small pension purchase land. And as the, as the story goes, I did indeed write a history of, of, of Promised Land, uh, self-published uh, work called The Ethos of Promised Land, uh, published in uh, 2006, and it was revised. But um, John Nesbitt and his brother Arch Nesbitt uh, escaped slavery, actually. And uh, John went to uh, Paducah, Kentucky, where he enlisted in the service. And uh, he uh, served uh, from 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 uh, um, the time that he enlisted in 1863 through 1865. Um, 18 uh, no, yeah, he, he enlisted in 1863 at Paducah, and uh, he was mustered out in in Little Rock, Arkansas, in 1866. He got pretty injured in the war, right? He did indeed. His well, he was enlisted in the in the Company H Fourth uh, Regiment of, and his one of his uh, duties were in the heavy artillery and in Cumberland Furnace, as you you mentioned before. Cumberland Furnace was a place where they made an awful lot of the cannonballs mm-hmm. uh, in the for the use in the Civil War. And his assignment was to load the cannons into the into the uh, into the machinery. And uh, one of the backfiring systems evidently didn't work or something. Anyway, he got. Uh, injured um in 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 the uh, in the war but he did indeed survive and he uh, lived uh, on until he was <clears throat> um like 74 75 years old and uh in promised land but he came back to promised land uh and uh, had 12 children with his wife uh ellen uh clemens nesbitt and um the, uh, the the story goes how he and his 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 brother along with the other they were not the first um, um, residents of Promised Land who 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 came back to, to purchase land after after the uh, Civil War, uh, but he was uh, uh, they were among about four or five people, and they both purchased land in this general area. And I think as as, as Nancy has spoken of, he uh, and his wife donated the land for the for the school, the Promised Land School, which is a heritage building now, and the church, uh, which was of course not the church that that we that we see standing now, but it was just pretty much a link to but everything grew. Out of that, and they called it, as as the story goes, um, they called it the Promised Land, which the, it was land promised by the federal government. They were able to mm. finagle a purchase, if you will, out mm. of that, uh, and, and so Promised Land continued to grow and grow and grow into what uh, what you know so much about today. So I understand that he actually used the disability he got from the army to buy and yes. donate this land to Promised Land. Yes. What does that mean he to you? Donated- Oh, it means very, very much, very, very much to to me, uh, because they recognize, along with the other families in in Promised Land, which uh, our cousin Serena, I know, has, has given you information about. Um, uh, they donated the land because they they knew that in order to build something of, of lasting value, they needed uh, uh, religion and education. They needed education and religion, and they did those things uh, to hold people, and that was the holding mechanism i think for all of the all of the uh, residents of promised land because so many people were saying that you know you need to leave the south you need to move on mm-hmm. but they were able to able to put down roots where they where they where they knew and grew up um um and it just became uh, contagious mm-hmm. and uh, the the, uh, the community just grew and grew and uh as it grew uh, the people gained uh, gained confidence in what in their ability to do it and they indeed received um um, uh, all of the, all the assistance 
that they that they could from 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 neighboring communities, and they were able to able to to uh, to survive and prosper in Promised Land. Okay, now Serena, aside from the Nesbits, who were some of the first founding families to settle that area that became known as Promised Land? Well, they include my uh, ancestors, William Gilbert, who settled uh, here about eighteen. Uh, it was. Um, before 1870, by 1870, he had pro- uh, bought property, uh, which was considered Gilbert Town. He and his wife, uh, Priscilla Redden Nesbitt, I mean, Redden Gilbert, uh, purchased uh, about 59 acres of land. And uh, then there was Nathan Bourne, who also was an early settler and a land purchaser. Uh, it appears that these settlers, early settlers, were able to get the land through the Freedmen's Bureau, which was set up under the Reconstruction Act, in order to um, uh, uh, provide a placement for those who had been in, uh, enslaved, as well as members of the U.S. Colored Troop. Um, and uh, based on some of the research, it uh, leads me to believe that Promised Land got its name based on uh, the resettlement by the Freedmen's Bureau. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was, the, and also the Van Leers were uh, uh, land purchasers. And uh, one of the things that I'm most impressed by was in 1867, when uh, the first opportunity for African-Americans to vote, uh, many of those who were early settlers voted in that election. And it was a very important election for Tennessee. Uh, it meant that the governor, who had been uh, who had been appointed under the uh, United States Army, uh, and I believe his name was Governor Brown Brownlow, uh, he was running for that seat. And many of the men uh, who voted were able to vote uh, for the election re-election of Brownlow. Now, we heard about this story earlier about how the history was passed down from the town's elders on their porches. Serena, yes. did, did your family tell you about the history of the town? Uh, certainly my uh, mother and my grandmother. Uh, both uh, my grandmother attended Promised Land School in the early 1900s. Um, and uh, she told me about the school and what it was like. And she told me that uh, when she was there, uh, they didn't have uh, desks. They had benches, very much like the benches that we have in the school now. In fact, those benches that are in the school came from a neighboring church, the Mount Olive AME Church. And uh, they were built by uh, the people in the community. And uh, she told me that the benches that they used at Promised Land School were very similar to the benches that were in the church. Mm. So that gave me a picture of what the school looked like in the early 1900s when they had nearly 100 students enrolled at Promised Land School. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking about Promised Land, Tennessee, a once thriving town settled by formerly enslaved people during Reconstruction. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Dr. LaRotha Williams is a professor of African-American and public history at Tennessee State University. He's also writing a book about Promised Land with descendant Serena Gilbert, set to come out next year. Dr. Williams, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Now, can you give us some context for the time when Promised Land was founded? What was happening in Dixon County and in Tennessee at that time? Um, We were going through Reconstruction, um, one of the more controversial periods in American history. Mm -hmm. Controversial because um, the narrative that was crafted about this period was very much favorable to um, the Southern aristocracy, the Confederacy, and so forth. Um, There's a story that essentially argued that black folks were completely unprepared to be free. Um, Promised Land emerges in a, in a time where African Americans finally get an opportunity to realize their freedom dreams, right? Mm-hmm. So we've heard them sing about it in the spirituals. We've heard them pray about it in the churches. We saw them abandon the South by running away. But when Promised Land forms, it provides an opportunity for African-Americans to make all these dreams manifest. Um, As you look at Promised Land, you go there today and you see the two most powerful institutions that emerged during Reconstruction in the black community. And arguably, they're still two of the most powerful institutions today. That's the church and the school. Mm -hmm. So they build up an independent church and... um, typically attach a school to it. One thing that really resonates with Promised Land's story, though, is, um, you know, it's it's, it's a Jeffersonian idea in, in some regards, where Thomas Jefferson believed that the farmers were the most noble, the most independent and freest people in the world. Yeah. Well, these soldiers aren't thinking about Jefferson, but they can look around and see Uh, essentially who the most free people are. So immediately they began to acquire land. Land is a source of power, and it gives them options. Um, For me, this, this community represents the transition of African Americans in Dixon County from enslaved persons to freed people. Now, Cumberland Furnace is nearby, once major iron operation that ran on forced labor. But after emancipation, you know, formerly enslaved people, a lot, like you said, they left the area. But the founders of Promised Land decided to stay. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they made that choice? Um, A lot of times we can have attachment to a place where it's almost like we own the place. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't appreciate this before I... My first job was in Savannah, where I worked among the Gullah. And and there's such an intimate relationship that we find between the people and the land there. And you see the same thing in, 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 in Promised Land, an intimate attachment. And this is something that is known. Okay, my children are born there. We buried my parents there, and God willing, um, I'm going to die there. Mm-hmm. So there's that connection. But 
as I said before, it's an American story, so you have to take into account the great migration. Some leave the South for whatever reason was could have been pushed out or pulled out. But now, oh, I'm sorry. But as was mentioned earlier, uh, we see where a lot of the people are coming back, and there's a very powerful hold on them. Now, Serena, you know, I want to know how the town really grew in the first few years. Like, what did people do to help the community expand? Well, in the first few years, as uh, as already been discussed, many of the people were farmers, uh, but uh, they also worked at the furnace. Now, uh, most of the people who settled in Promised Land came from the uh, Dixon County area, and that's areas in Charlotte and Cumberland Furnace. Many of them had been enslaved at the furnace. But uh, during the Civil War, the furnace was closed and it reopened shortly after uh, the war ended. And the owner of the furnace, the new owner, made an offer that couldn't be refused. And that was that people who had been enslaved there, as well as those who had not, were offered an opportunity to be paid to work there. So many of them found employment at the furnace. So that, uh, and with the funds that they were able to uh, earn, they then put it back into the community by becoming businessmen, uh, owning stores, uh, by supporting their families. Uh, their farms were subsistence farm farms. They weren't farms that were commercial, but basically uh, to support their family as well as the community because there was a lot of sharing. Uh, and so this is how they were able to make uh, a life. And then education was really a very important part of the community. Although the uh, eighth grade was the furthest they could go educationally in the community, many of them uh, went beyond because they took residence in Nashville or Clarksville so that they could attend a high school. Uh, the first high school in Dixon County for African-Americans was established in 1922. And I have to kind of boast that many of the students that graduated from Promised Land, our finished Promised Land school, went on to be uh, what our teacher there in Promised Land called scholars at uh, Hampton High School in Dixon. And many graduated as valedictorians and salutatorians, and they went on to college. Can you tell and us? So this is how they Can you tell us about your teacher who educated yes, all of these scholars? Miss Ollie Hellison came to Promised Land in uh, the late 1940s. And she was there until the school closed in 1957. I believe that there was a period, maybe a year or two, where another Promised Land uh, resident, former Promised Land resident, came and uh, taught for about a year. And her name was Miss Fanny Van Leer. But Miss Ollie Hudson never referred to us as students, or uh, seldom referred to us as students. She called us her scholars. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of, uh, I think, uh, put some uh, incentive in us uh, to achieve and be high achievers academically. And, uh, but Ms. Uh, Ms. Huddleston was a, a single lady. Uh, in fact, I remember her mother, she lived with her mother and she, uh, lived in Dixon. She was educated at Tennessee State University. At that time, it was Tennessee A&I, 
State uh, University. Uh, and she uh, would come to Promised Land in order to get there. Uh, uh, at first, she boarded with a resident uh, who lived in Promised Land, Miss Georgie Redding, who we called Aunt E. She lived with Aunt E in Upper Balls. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, after she moved out and uh, started commuting from Dixon, she would take the mail truck to uh, from Dixon uh, and get off on Highway 48 at Redding Crossing and walk to uh, the school, which was about a uh, half a mile or a quarter of a mile. And uh, she was just a very dedicated woman, and she taught for the Dixon County School System until uh, into the 80s when she retired. Wow, that is a really long time, and that is some serious dedication. You know, as we've been hearing, the town has changed a lot over the years, especially as people migrated north. Sokoto, even though you've moved away, you've invested a lot in this town. Is that right? Yes, in terms of uh, uh, moving, moving back and doing what, what uh, working with with, um, with with relatives like Serena and her brother and all the others who have been working to preserve what we have, moving uh, um, uh, our, ourselves and our resources into into the into the uh, the, uh, the the treasure of of, of what we know. Uh, that we have to do to preserve um, the school and, uh, and and the church and all that it all that it represents for all of us. And of course, I'm not I'm not the only one. A number of number of, of people, and as you've heard about cousins and and and, and relatives have done the same. So uh, it is it is just it's just a it's a it's a dedicated responsibility and duty to to, uh, to do that. I moved away when I was in the fifth grade and uh, ended up coming back. Um, and, and once I once I graduated and came back, I went to school. Uh, I moved away to Columbus, Ohio, mm -hmm. went to school, uh, college in Arkansas, then came back to Ohio to teach and uh, moved, uh, you know, to graduate studies at, at Ohio State University and uh, came back uh, to join um, people like you know, Serena. You know, and we have to give Serena a, a great deal of credit. I say this everywhere I go and have the opportunity to speak because while most of us moved away and came back to do what we could do, but there's absolutely no way that we could we could envision what uh, uh, realize and uh, uh, understand the the, the the vision coming to life without that physical presence. That when when Serena came back and when was it, Serena two thousand four or something like that when she came back uh, and began to begin to. As an edu as one of Miss Holson's scholars, <laughs> mm. she she came back and 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 and, and really settled and 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 uh, you know lived on on living as she is now on on her family property that kind of thing. That that's 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 the catalyst around which all the the folk of really all of which everything has ended up turning for the last several um, more than a decade. A lot of credit has to be given to Serena, her brother uh, William Gibbert. Yes, um, and others like the Robinsons, Lorenzo Robinson, others have just done the same, and and of course uh, uh, we have we 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 indebted to our ancestry and that uh, cultural and spiritual uh, ingrading that has that that has come up through us to to cause us to come back and 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 do what we're doing. So it's it, it, it's great. Yes, sir. To to be yeah to be it feels worn up. Yes, sir. You know, to, 
That is Sokoto yeah. Fulani, charter member of the Promised Land Heritage Association. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Serena K. Gilbert and Dr. LaRotha Williams, stick with us through the break. We have to take a really short break. When we come back, we'll look into the present and future of Promised Land and learn how the new generation of descendants is keeping its stories alive. Do you have questions about Promised Land? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. This hour is all about Promised Land, Tennessee. It's a town founded by formerly enslaved people during Reconstruction. What was once a thriving, self-contained town began to dwindle as families migrated north. Before the break, we were revisiting that history. Now the descendants have been working to keep its history alive. Descendant Serena K. Gilbert and Dr. LaRotha Williams are still with us. Now, Serena, let me ask you, if I'm understanding this right, it was the women of Promised Land who were vitally important to its legacy. Is that correct? Well, yes, uh, it is correct. Uh, but I need to just say uh, the men also played a very big part. Uh, it was, uh, uh, unfortunately, the, there were four women who were left widows uh, in Promised Land by the eight, uh, 1980s. Hmm. And it was their vision that sparked uh, the preservation and the restoration of the community. But uh, there were also people like uh, Sokoto mentioned, uh, those who moved away and came back. And I returned in uh, 2004. But before I moved back, uh, there was a, a man by the name of Lorenzo Robinson, who had also moved away and had uh, returned maybe a couple of years before I did. And then Helen Hughes who had uh, moved away and she too had returned maybe a couple of years before I did. Then my brother came. Uh, so, uh, and we basically picked up where these women had uh, started in terms of trying to uh, preserve the history and, the, and restore the buildings. Well, what so, happened that made you realize that you had to take the baton and continue the work that these women and your mother had done? It was a spiritual thing uh, because it was not my plan to come back and uh, do the work that I'm doing. Uh, my plan was that I would stay in the, the Washington, D.C. area and re, uh, as a retiree and volunteer and do work there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, my mother, who would come and stay with us uh, in the winter and return in the spring, she announced in 2002, which was the year I retired, that she wasn't coming back and stay with us anymore because she wanted to stay in promised land. She wanted to be near the church that uh, she and her sister-in-law uh, were uh, influential over and uh and where her friends were and organizations. So I spoke up real quickly and said, you don't have to come back. I'm going to come and stay with you in the winters. Okay. And when that came out of my mouth, I'm like, who said that? Where did it come from? <laughs> uh -huh. But I uh, was obedient to uh, that. And I returned and um, 
and the rest of it is history. But uh, it, uh, so I, I uh, that's my answer to that. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So question, what did it take to get the promised land we see today? It took a lot of work. And, uh, you know, uh, we, as you could probably hear from our conversation, we are a very close-knit group of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We loved each other going to school and uh, going to Promised Land School. And we and our families were bonded uh, through uh, DNA as well as our our, uh, social network. Um, So coming back and... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's funny, my mom, uh, she said to Lorenzi, you're going to be the president of the Promised Land Community Club. That was our name before we changed to Promised Land Heritage Association. But she uh, she told him, you will be the president. Helen is going to be uh, the vice president. And, uh, and later on, I became the secretary, not through election, but because my mother appointed me okay. as secretary of the organization. Okay. And uh, so we uh, were obedient and uh, started our work, uh, which had uh, a foundation had already been laid uh, through uh, my mom and others. They had a marker that signified the significance, the historical significance of the community was already laid. Our plan was to restore the school from the beginning, uh, from the top to the bottom. So we became a 501c3 organization in order to uh, gain funds to get this done. Um, And right after we became a 501c3, we gained the support of the Tennessee, um, the Middle Tennessee State University Center for Historic Preservation, who uh, assisted us in getting the building registered as a historical uh, a registered landmark. Now, I want to ask about that. In 20, 2007, the Promised Land School was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. Dr. Williams, what's the significance of receiving that placement? It's an acknowledgement that this space has historical significance, either architecturally or it could be culturally but in the case of Promised Land, would it be due to African-American history and culture as well? Um, so it's national recognition. And from that, it opens the doors for applications to grants and other sources of funding um, through the government or through local areas where you can make the statement that, hey, this place is a special and important place. How important is that preservation in a society that's divided on what history is and what history is to be taught in schools? It's a really good question. Um, Khalil, we don't have any monuments to slavery or Reconstruction. And arguably, we don't have quite enough monuments to Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Um, to Well, let me rephrase that to our transitions or how we grappled with Jim Crow, right? Um, That school and that church, those are monuments that were created by the people of Promised Land. So it's something a bit different where, you know, like Miss Gilbert or or Dr. Fulani could go up and lay their hands on the church and say, our ancestors put this up every day we drive past this. This is a memorial to their struggle or to go 
by the church. And here, Ms. Gilbert talk about John Lewis coming there. Okay. Uh, or the promised land singers. So these, these, these spaces and these buildings, the built environment are our very tangible reminders of the past. And one thing I rail against is like, we shouldn't be tearing down our old churches. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in, but, your, in your view, why is that history, the history of this place, Promised Land, so important? Because it, it animates our understanding of the past far more than I could do in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it adds life to the story. And if you ever visit Promised Land, you right away you realize that there's something special about that place, that that the smiles that you get are a bit warmer. Mm-hmm. And the food tastes a little better, too, I will admit. Okay. <laughs> but um, space, place is important when it comes to memory. Now, Serena, as an elder of the community and someone who has dedicated so many years to keeping the town's essence alive, what would you like to see for the future of Promised Land? I would like to see... Uh, uh, us grow in capacity. Uh, I would really like to see in the next year that we have uh, hired an executive director who is compensated. And uh, through that, uh, as well as uh, having a passion for the continuous of the community and and the and recognize the importance of leaving a footprint of the legacy of our ancestors. I would like to see such person hired to direct uh, the the ongoing and future of the site. What do you have planned to wear at next year's parade of hats? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm one of those who sit back as a spectator, but I would really like to see more spectacular hats, the kind of hats you see at some of these um, uh, 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 horse, the races, mm-hmm. uh, the kind you would see at the Kentucky Derby, uh, because those are some of the kind of uh, flamboyant hats that we saw back in the days when they would come to church. Uh, and uh, I would like to see it grow. I would like to see it continue to be very diverse uh, and uh, people bringing their own energy and style to it. I'm sure that whatever you wear, Miss Serena, you're going to be looking fly. I want to thank my guests, Serena K. Gilbert and Dr. Larotha Williams, for being on the show today. I wish we had more time. Thank you for sharing such a wonderful and rich history with us. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we dig in the crates. We're talking about vinyl production and collection in Music City for all of you audiophiles out there. I'm one of them. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Shernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to all the cousins in Promised Land. Conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>